Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, dying to live. It's so exciting when it all goes up, the Christmas tree, the mantle greens, the front door wreath, and those of you who lined the rooftop with lights, now they got to come down, don't they? Now, what do you do with that old Christmas tree or that once gorgeous garland? As you take down the Tannenbaum, Julia Georgialis, a 32-year-old London-based industrial designer turned baker, is calling upon holiday revelers to consider a culinary alternative. She literally wants you to eat your Christmas tree. Yes, you heard me. She said, and I quote, for some reason, when you mix Christmas tree with dairy, it's kind of unbelievable. She has spent the last five years concocting Christmas tree recipes, hosting sold-out culinary classes to promote her Christmas tree delicacies. Talk about a taste of the Tannenbaum. In fact, she's published a cookbook called How to Eat Your Christmas Tree. Among the Yuletide favorites are Christmas tree pickles. I know you're desiring some of those right now. Or Christmas tree hot smoked fish. And are you ready? Her real favorite, Christmas tree ice cream. Get out the churn, kids. Gather around. We're about to munch on that merry Christmas tree. The flavor of tree needles, she says, is sort of like lemony or bitter. It ranks for the very best of spices. In fact, one enthusiast says, you've never had fresh lake trout until you've had it smothered with Douglas fir pesto in the bug. Now, I know that some Baptists spike the eggnog for that hap, hap, happy holiday party, but she's actually advocating Douglas fir-infused eggnog is the best eggnog available. Now, before you go, Christmas tree cuisine eating. However, you need to know that some plants are poisonous and your pastor is not advising you to nibble on those needles. Whether you gobble the Christmas tree or deliver it to the dump, Christmas is past. We are beyond the Christmas season sermons and we're back to our business in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's a two-point sermon. The first point is this. We have died to sin. Died to sin. Verse 2. Paul was being slandered. Turn back to Romans chapter 3 and verse 8. There were some of Paul's enemies who loved the law more than they loved the grace of God. They have mistakenly portrayed Paul as saying something along these lines. Let us sin all the more that grace might abound. Look at Romans 3, 8. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and some claim that we say, let us do evil that good might come. Or back to Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? If the answer is yes, 
then nothing has changed about the lives of believers in comparison to the lives of unbelievers. Sin, therefore, and its co-conspirator, death, would still rule in the lives of God's people. Paul, in our passage today, he draws on believers to experience baptism all over again, contending that believers have died to sin when they die with Christ, that our destiny is tied directly to the story, the narrative, and the destiny of Christ. I want you to notice all the with language. How many times we have with used. I'm going to pick up verse 3 and read through verse 8. Look how many times you see the word with. Are you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, and that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Our destiny is connected to the destiny of the Christ. We are buried with him, 6-4. We are united with him in his death, 6-5. We are crucified with him in 6-6. We died with him in 6-8. To rise with him, 6-5. To live with him, 6-8. Put bluntly, those joined to Christ have died to sin and therefore cannot continue to live in sin. Paul's first idea here is that we have died to sin when Christ died bearing our sin on his back. And therefore he says, look at verse 14, the end of this section, for we shall not, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but rather under grace. We are under grace. In verse 5, that language of, for we have become united with him, the idea here is participation. Whatever Christ does, we do. When he dies with our sin on his back, we die to sin. When he rises, we rise with him. The word united is symphotoi. It's the word symphony. You hear that in there? Our lives are harmonized with the life of Christ. Our story is in step with his story. We are together. We are fused together with the narrative of Christ. Our death is harmonized with his death. Now, we need to avoid the misconception, Paul's saying, that now we can live loosely Look back at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. Uh, translated very kindly there. It's a heck no, Paul says. May get a toy. May it never be. We do not sin more because God can then forgive more. We cannot say that our sin magnifies God's glory and God's grace. It's a crude parody of Paul's gospel to say that it is true we don't live under the law, we live under grace, but 
Paul would say this, as God gives grace, obedience flows from our faith in the story of Jesus, and we are transformed by the forgiveness of God, not led deeper into sin. We are recreated in our baptism in the story of Jesus. Well, look what he says in verse 11. For even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. We are dead to sin. Our Adam-like nature, our living under the sphere and the dominion of sin was crucified when Christ died on the cross with our sins on his back. We are no longer slaves held captive to sin. There are two things to which we're held slave, sin and death. And notice we are dead to sin. We are alive to God. We are set free as being slaves to sin and death. We are baptized. We were plunged in those baptismal waters. We are saying that we die with Christ and we rise with Christ. Throughout Romans 6, we have this metaphor of slavery that once the slave dies, the slave has no more obligation to the master. And if we have died with Christ on the cross, then we are no longer slaves to sin. We do not owe the master sin anything, nor the master death. We are set free. We once were slaves to sin and death, but now because Christ has made us free, we are free. In 1 Corinthians 15, I think we find the nucleus of Paul's gospel. He says, Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 3, was buried, and was raised on the third day. That's all you need to know. That this passion of our Christ, this story of our Jesus becomes our story. We die with him. We are buried with him. And we rise with him. Our baptism is a picture of the gospel itself. He died. We die. He was buried. We're buried. He arose. We will arise. Our destiny is woven with his. We are in symphony with the Christ. If we die with him, we rise with him. What does it mean, verse 2, to die to sin? Or verse 3, to be baptized into Christ's death? A believer is so united with Christ in baptism that at Christ's death is viewed as a death of the one who's baptized. And our own life in Adam, our own sinful self, is cast under the judgment of God right then. And therefore we live, he says, in newness of life. A new life in Christ rises out of our baptismal waters. We're baptized, we're proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and our faith in Christ tells us we die with him and we rise with him. Look at verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. He died to sin. But death isn't the end of the story. Died to sin. But the second thing I want you to see, look at verse 11. Alive to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin. But the second point of the sermon yeah, we're dead to sin because he paid for our sin, but we are alive 
to God. It's unusual, to say the least. Now, it's not unusual after a funeral for a family to give me a thank you card or note, but this was absolutely unusual. For the family handed me a thank you card after the funeral, but it was written by the deceased. She had planned ahead for me to the funeral and already had written and filed, talking about being prepared, had written me a thank you note for the wonderful funeral that she was sure that I had done. She was completely ready. She picked out the casket. She purchased the casket. She picked out the song and the soloist, the song selections. She picked the scripture that was going to be read. She even had a, a, a poem pre-written to her family that was in a sealed envelope for me to read to the family. She had sold the house. She had sold the car. She'd gone through the house and put a little label on every vase and every piece of furniture saying to whom that vase or piece of furniture was to go. I have never seen anybody ready like this woman was ready. She was completely taking care of all the business necessary to depart from this world. But unlike this unusual saint, who faced death with courage and confidence. She was just ready to go. Many people recall at conversations like today about death and life after death, dying with Christ, living with Christ. While stunning himself in the Bahamas, a wealthy English businessman received a telegram from his butler, James, that said, cat dead. Well, that was, he was distraught. He loved his cat. The businessman cut his holidays short, and he flew back to Europe. And Well, he returned home. He gave the cat a nice burial in the family garden. And then, well, he chastised his butler about the nature of the telegram. He said, James, you just don't say cat dead like that when I'm over in the Bahamas. You've got to break news like this gently. You've got to take your time. He said, if I were telling you that your cat was dead, this is the way I would have done it. He said, first of all, I would have sent you a first telegram saying, the cat is on the roof and can't get down. He said, then a couple hours later, I would send you a telegram that said, the cat has fallen off the roof and the cat is badly injured. I would wait two more hours and then I would tell you, the cat has sadly passed away. I never would have said cat dead out of the blue. He said, that's the way you deliver bad news to somebody. You kind of let them down level at a time, slowly. I understand, said James the butler. I will bear that in mind for the future. The businessman got another flight, went back to the Bahamas to enjoy his vacation. And two days later, he received another telegram that went like this. Your mother-in-law's on the roof. Since the beginning of time, man's greatest fear has been death. George Tilborg tells us the fear of death is present in our mental functioning at all times. Melanie Klein, a British psychologist, added that the fear of death is at the root of all human anxiety. One thing is certain, when we preach about death, I'm preaching to you, for no one 
is left out. When it comes to other topics, often we think the preacher is speaking to somebody else. He's not speaking to me, but today I'm speaking to you. You can be certain of that. Life's ultimate statistic is clear. One out of one dies 100%. Death is no respecter of persons. The Bible says appointed to a man wants to die, and then the judgment. We can try to postpone it. We can try to lessen the pain. We can try to deny its existence, but one thing is clear. We cannot escape it. And the art of dying well, it needs to be learned by men and women, not when they're on deathbed, but when they are healthy. You need to know how to die right by learning how to live right. We will die in this life sooner or later. We will leave something and someone behind. The truth of the matter is that each one of us writes our own funeral every single day. We must live as men and women preparing, learning the art of dying well. We write our funerals by what we say and by what we do. At every funeral, whether we like it or not, people evaluate the life of the dearly departed and the preacher digs deeply to call us to remember all the good things and some of you expect us to be the maker of miracles to be sure. Regardless of what the pastor says, you've already said it with your words and your actions. But the good news of the gospel is that in Christ we die to sin and we are raised with him to eternal life. If we die with him, Paul is saying, we also rise with him. In verse 5 of chapter 6, Paul is saying the story of Jesus has become your story. We have been crucified with Christ, but also because Christ was resurrected, we too will live forever. Because Christ lives, we too live. It was like the experience of Antonio Parr in Frederick Beekner's open heart as he stood at the Brooklyn Gray side of his twin sister Miriam. He said, Some stirring of the air or a quick movement of a squirrel brought me back to myself. And just at that instant, I knew that the self I'd been brought back to was some fine day going to be as dead as Miriam. Through grace alone, I banged right into it. Not a lesson this time, but a collision that I would one day die. The Christian faith has always argued that there is another place and there is an eternal life. And life beyond this life is a life that really matters in my end is my beginning, poet T.S. Eliot said. Those are only words of his early poem, Burnt Norton, but they're also on his very tombstone. In a profound way, where we are headed affects how we travel now, Paul is saying. 
And death for all of its darkness and all of its darkness leads for the believer to something that is better than this life now. Despite the riches of this world, the New Testament reminds us that we're on our way to a better reality, a more substantial than our present experience. We do not here have an enduring city, the author of Hebrews says, but we're looking for that city to come. Paul says we do not look for things that are seen, but things that are unseen. What Paul is trying to get us to see in Romans chapter 6 is what I call a theology of participation. If you know this theology is the only thing you know about theology, it's all you need to know with him. We die with him. We rise with him. When he died, we died to sin. When he arose, our eternal life was made sure. Participation with him. It's our baptism. We're showing we die with him, we're buried with him, and we rise with him. We are in symphony with him. His story becomes our story. His life, our life. His resurrection, our resurrection. If we've died with Christ, verse 8, We shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. And death is no longer master over him, which also means death is not master over you. For the death that he died, he died for sin once to all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Could it be any clearer than that? When the Messiah arose on that first Easter, he's alive to a new kind of life that death can't touch. When Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead by Jesus, she was raised back to the starting line to die again. When Lazarus came forth, he was back to the starting line to die again. But not so with Jesus. He went through death. He wasn't just called back to begin life again on earth. He went to the finish line, not the starting line. He went to life beyond death. He went to his new glorified, resurrected state invites us to come and follow him. The early Christians were so clear about this. Once we're in Messiah, we are through death. One day to experience a bodily resurrection, a renewed, glorified body. Don't say, I want more sin, Paul says. I'm saying, you're not in Adam anymore. You're in Christ. His death is your death, and his life is your life. 2 Corinthians, he says it this way. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But through our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light afflictions producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. For while we look not at things which are seen, but things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
Now I say this, brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, the twinkling of eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this imperishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. O death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Sifatoi, united with him. The reality is anyone who calls Jesus Lord already died 2,000 years ago. Death can't strike twice. We all died with him. That we might also surely rise with him too. With him. With him in death and with him in glory. Let us pray. God, it's been a tough year in so many ways. In the midst of unprecedented death, we point to the unprecedented resurrection of Jesus. We're grateful we're the people, the only people who have a God whose tomb is empty. And his story is not about one man coming to life again, but rather the beginning of the age of the resurrection that those who believe in him will follow. God, there's so many in this room today who need that word of comfort to know that even like we died 2,000 years ago, we arose 2,000 years ago to, oh, death, no sting on God's people. Maybe there's some here this morning who need to claim the resurrection of Jesus for herself or himself to say, I want to die with him that I can rise with him. I want to be sure. Even now, confess your sins and let his death for your sins allow you to die to the sphere of sin that you can rise to the sphere of life. God, we're sinners we believe in our Jesus. We invite him into our hearts. And we want to walk as he walked. And in his name we pray. Amen.